This morning, as we continue and even conclude our series in the early primeval chapters of Genesis, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. This text is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read and follow along there. Beloved, I invite you now to listen once more to God's holy and inerrant word. His word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. The word of God is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed all the holy scriptures are written for our learning. And so we ask and pray that this morning, by your grace, you would enable us by your spirit to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today we conclude our sermon series that we've had since around January on the primeval history in Genesis. Um, the next two Sundays, Pastor Jeff will preach first on the ascension of our Lord next Sunday, and then on the following one, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then on the first Sunday in June, we'll return to our regular series in the Psalter. We've been preaching 
consecutively through the Psalter for a number of years. If you've not been with us, um, we do that each summer and we'll pick up again the first Sunday in June where we left off last summer with Psalm 64, um, following 65 and so on the rest of the summer. Throughout this sermon series on Genesis, I've been arguing that these early chapters of Genesis are given to us that we might have a true history of the world. And what I mean by that is not only that these events, the murder of Abel, the construction of a city by his brother Cain, the flood that came um, over the entire globe, the ark that Noah built, the animals that inhabited it, that all those things actually took place historically. I do, of course, mean that. But I also mean that these stories are recorded for us because they give us the truth about the human story, about who we are as human beings, as a human race, living in this world under God's rule and God's presence. In other words, these stories in the first chapters of Genesis are not so much given to us primarily so we could learn a couple maxims for our individual lives. Now, certainly there are individual applications of these stories, but primarily they are given to us so that we might understand and have a, a lens and an interpretation of the grand movements of history all throughout the ages and the way that God is at work in our world today, not only in a micro level, but at a meta level as well. That is to say, these stories are given to us because they set patterns for all the stories that come, the stories that we read in the rest of God's Word and the Scriptures, the stories that we read in the history textbooks, which tell us about other things that take place in the world, and even the stories that we read in the newspaper today. What happens here in Genesis 1 to 11 tells us about those things, tells us what we should expect, tells us how to interpret what is taking place. In other words, the story of Cain and Abel is given to us as a picture of the jealousy and violence that the wicked will always have for the righteous. This is one of the facts of history. As the Apostle John would write some 4,000 years after Cain murdered Abel, he says, and why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In like manner, the story of God's judgment of the world by the flood is meant to be a picture, a pattern of all God's judgments that will come and follow throughout history. A foreshadowing of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah about ten chapters later in Genesis. A foreshadowing and, an, and a picture of Israel's cleansing of the land of Canaan after the Exodus. A foreshadowing, a picture of God's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the armies of Babylon. And so on and on and on again. It's a picture of the fall of Rome. It's a picture of all the things that have taken place throughout history where God has executed judgment. The flood is a picture of those things all the way up to the judgment that our Lord Jesus Christ will bring on the last day. 
but also, in a similar way, the ark in that story is a picture as well, a pattern-setting picture, a a pattern-setting picture that shows how God will always preserve his people through whatever judgment he brings, how he will always protect and deliver those who belong to to him, how even in death, God is with his people to save. And and so, in a like manner, our story this morning of the Tower of Babel is a picture as well, a pattern-setting story of how God will respond throughout the whole rest of history to the pride and hubris of humanity. Not only in this particular story, but how throughout history, We get a foreshadowing of how God again and again will tear down civilizations and cities that are built on the foundation of human pride and arrogance. This, in many ways, this short passage is the story of the world history for the next thousands and thousands of years, even to our present day. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. Here's how our passage today begins. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, notice that repetition. They're speaking to themselves, come, let us do this. Come, let us do this. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed to protect ourselves from being dispersed over the whole face of the whole earth. Now, the Tower of Babel story takes place about 150 years, 150 years or so after the flood. At this time, all of humanity has one language because God reduced the human race to eight people in the flood, and all of their descendants naturally shared the same tongue. Now, it's important, if you've never thought about this story carefully, to state that what takes place in the story is not the whole human race. The story doesn't involve the entirety of humanity at this time. It's not as though all of humanity gathered together there on the plain of Shinar to build the Tower of Babel. No, this is a, a portion of Noah's descendants who are involved in this story. In particular, they are the descendants of Ham. And that's important because, as we saw two weeks ago, Ham was the son who rebelled against Noah's authority by looking on his nakedness and then telling his brothers about the nakedness of his father. We know this because Genesis 10 tells us. It tells us in verses 8 to 10 about those who gathered on the plain of Shinar and built the Tower of Babel. It says in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 10, Cush... We can insert there the son of Ham. We know that from other parts of Genesis 10. Cush, the son of Ham, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And here in verse 10, we read more about Nimrod. It says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. So this is who Genesis 11 is about. Nimrod was the grandson of Ham. And we know from Genesis 10 that he founded his kingdom in the land of Shinar and that it was called Babel. In other words, the story of the Tower of Babel is not about all of humanity joining together and building a tower to heaven. Rather, it is about a specific portion of the human race, a rebellious and wicked group of people led by Nimrod who are following his grandfather and his sin of rebellion, joining together to do these things. And we know that this is sinful for several reasons. Remember first that God had commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Nimrod and those who gather with him on the plain of the land of Shinar say that they do what they do lest they be dispersed, lest they be sent out as God intended to fill the earth. Instead, they determined to stay in one place and build there a great city, a city that perhaps had its inspiration and the stories they had heard about the city of Cain that was built in Genesis 4, a city with a tower that would have a top that reached the heavens. Thereby, they said, we will make a name for ourselves. I think it's clear that this tower was built, that was built on the plain of Shinar, had religious connotations. The history of pagan religion, of course, is full of ziggurats, of human constructed towers that are meant to symbolically reach up into the heavens and provide a way for man to commune with God on his own terms, to go up into heaven. And it seems that this is the intention here in Genesis 11. Nimrod and his followers are seeking to make their name great, to establish themselves. And they do so by literally seeking to elevate themselves to gain standing with God, equal standing with God. Remember in the garden, the serpent deceived Adam and Eve by promising that if they ate the fruit of the tree, they would be like God. They would become like God. And here... Human beings, children of Adam and Eve, are reenacting that same desire, seeking to make a way to heaven by their own effort, their own initiation, that they might be like God. The church father, Augustine, wisely points out an interesting thing, too, about this tower. He says, since the story of the Tower of Babel takes, so, takes place so soon after the flood, it is also possible that one of the motivations of the builders of the tower was to build something so tall and mighty that they would be protected against any future judgment that God might bring. They intended, Augustine says, to build a tower that was so tall that God, if he sent another flood, would not be able to drown them in its waters that would stand even above God's judgment if he sent another flood to drown the earth. I think that's interesting, something worth considering as we think about the motivation of these 
uh, people and why God opposed them. Now, one of the fascinating things about the Tower of Babel is the powerful unity and cooperation that was created by those who led this endeavor, right? They opposed God, and apparently they drew many to come and to work together, to to be in lockstep, so to speak, um, to cooperate in order to advance this great mission. And indeed, in that way, the Tower of Babel is paradigmatic of all efforts of humanity that humanity has made throughout the centuries that came after to establish their own greatness, to make a name for themselves, to build something that will reach even into the heavens itself. You see, when we read the story of the Tower of Babel, we should imagine and consider also its relationship to all the great civilizations of the world that would follow after. We should think about Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece under Alexander the Great, the Aztecs, Rome, even up into our modern times, men like Napoleon or Stalin or Hitler. Each of these empires gathered people together and gave them a common objective, a common vision for order and virtue and honor. The church father comments, Christostom rather, church father Christostom comments on the link between the Tower of Babel and humanity's eternal lust for power and pride and strength throughout the ages. And remember, he wrote these words 1,600 years ago, right? He wrote, reflecting on Babel, he says, Notice how the human race, this is what Christostom says, Notice how the human race, instead of managing to keep its own boundaries, always longs for more and reaches out for greater things than it is given. This is what the human race has as its common story, not being prepared to recognize the limitations of its own condition, but always lusting after more, entertaining ambitions beyond its capacity. Now, we might say, I recognize myself in that statement, right? That I lust for more, I lust to go beyond the boundaries that God has set for me. But what Christostom is noticing here and what the story of Babel is about is about how people in general do this, how people come together and seek to burst the bonds that God has placed upon them. This is a dynamic of human history that has been consistent throughout the ages. And the story is given to us that we might understand it and identify it. But how does God respond to this city on the plain of Shinar? What does he do in response to this tower? Verses 5 to 9 tell us. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And here, I don't think he means so much, you know, they might actually build a tower to the heavens. I think he means this is only the beginning of the wickedness that they will accomplish through their cooperative efforts together. He says, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Remember, one of the things that happened before the flood is that mankind lived 
almost a millennia. And so there was a great capacity for evil and wickedness when you live that long, when you build a society in that way. And so what God is doing is here, he's limiting the capacity of human beings to do the worst that they might do. He says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Let us cut this off at its knees so that they may not understand each other's language or other's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from over there, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. God makes sure that what he intends will happen, that they will fill the earth. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, the beginning of this section, I think it's meant to be a little bit funny. Nimrod and his followers are building a tower to the heavens, they think, but they're not anywhere close to reaching what they uh, uh, said they were trying to do. The Lord has to come down. He has to come. He has to stoop. He has to bend down and come to them to see what they're building, to even see it with his eyes. He has to bend down and see. And when the Lord sees what they're doing, what the children of man are up to, he frustrates their ambition, not by destroying the tower in some miraculous way. They might just build it again. No, he does it by confusing their languages and making their cooperation impossible by forcing them, thus forcing them to do what he had intended them to do, to disperse and fill the earth. You see, what the Lord is doing here is something that is important for us to understand as we think about human history. What he is doing and saying and communicating is that not only here at Babel, but all human efforts throughout the ages to build something great on our own terms will ultimately be defeated and thwarted by God. The rest of human history bears this out, right? Great civilizations have begun to be built. Great leaders have arisen. But always, without fail, they have fallen and collapsed and melted away. And understood biblically, we can say that all human civilizations, all great human projects of cooperation, have fallen not because of quote-unquote natural causes, but because of God's intervention. Because God has frustrated their ambitions. God has weakened their foundations. God has intervened to thwart their efforts and disperse their power, even as Augustine understood when he wrote his City of God. The barbarian tribes were being raised up in order to bring about the downfall of Rome. All of it was the doing of God. But this is not all that the Tower of Babel teaches us. Here, yes, in this chapter, Genesis 11, we have this striking picture of how God will limit human ambition and power, how he will disperse and weaken the human race, how he will thwart their ambitions to do something great for themselves, to make a name for themselves. But fascinatingly, in the next chapter, in Genesis 12, we are told that God, this isn't the end of the story, that God will actually begin to gather back into one, that same human race that he dispersed in Genesis 11. But he will do it on his terms. That's the important thing to see not on our terms. You see, in Genesis 12, God 
calls Abraham, he says, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see in Genesis 11, Nimrod and his followers seek to make their own name great through their efforts. But in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. God will accomplish this, not Abraham. In Genesis 11, God disperses the human race and scatters them to the corners of the globe. But in Genesis 12, God begins to lay the groundwork for a plan to gather the human race back again, to unite and bless them in His Son, the one who would be the offspring of Abraham, the inheritor of all the promises made here to Abraham in this passage. Indeed, the day of Pentecost, our New Testament reading this morning, is the reversal of Babel. You see, when Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, ascends into heaven, He pours out His Holy Spirit. And it is by means of this Spirit that the confusion of the nations and their languages is miraculously healed. Suddenly, all the nations gathered there in Jerusalem can hear Peter's sermon about the good news of the crucified and risen Son of God in their own speech. This is fundamental for understanding the redemptive historical um, story of the Bible. The miracle that happens at Pentecost is not just a kind of arbitrary sign of the Spirit's presence and power and His his, um, verification of the apostles' preaching. No, it is in itself an undoing of what God had done in Babel and what God had been doing throughout all the centuries since. It is a sign that God is now ready to call the human race together again. But on His terms, united in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And indeed, friends, this is just what has been happening in our world for the last 2,000 years since Pentecost. The empires and cities of the world have risen and they have fallen. Each one struck down in the end by God. Each one frustrated in their ambitions and plans. None of them have lasted. None have stood the test of time. And yet, What has lasted? The church established by a crucified Jew. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has grown in a continuous manner. It's one of the miracles of human history, even by someone who is not religious would acknowledge that. It has not been flashy, true, It has not been without its difficulties, yes. The church, rather, is, as our Lord said, like a seed that a man planted in the ground that grows into a great tree. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. It is, as the Apostle Peter says, like a house being built with living stones. 
with the risen and living Christ as its cornerstone. A house being constructed as a dwelling place for God. So beloved, do not be afraid when you read the newspapers. When the men of this world gather their strength and build their towers and make their boasts. Do not be shaken. They will be dispersed. They will be frustrated. They will fail in their ambitions. For he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. But he has set his king, his son on Zion, on his holy hill. And the city that he builds will last forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your word. Give us grace now to continue to meditate upon it, to treasure it up in our hearts, to seek to put it into practice in our lives. Father, we give you praise and thanks and ask that you be gracious to us in these things. In Christ's name, amen.